Hey, Carol, thank you for coming in. You know, you are doing so much across so many different communities, uh, both regionally and locally and nationally and globally. And it, I'm just amazed and uh, just an outstanding life history of contribution um, and continuing <laughs> because you're so young yet and you're continuing this journey. So thank you for coming in and sharing all of this with our audience. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Stephen. You know, when I, when I look at your background and I look at this outstanding history, as I mentioned, accomplishment and, and contribution and just making a difference in so many different ways. I'm, I'm curious, you know, what were maybe two or three inflection points that created this wonderful person that you are, this wonderful leader that you are today? Thank you. You know, I think sometimes it's so interesting, Stephen, the 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 answers can be so basic <laughs> and, and in a way so so random. Um, I had the pleasure during my uh, YPO journey of being the host chair for the Denver Global Leadership Conference in 2011. And um, you get to bring your personality to these roles in YPO. <laughs> I'm a Denver native, uh, very outdoorsy, very, um, you know, we we care about our Rocky Mountains. And I had an underlying theme at the time in, uh, again, 2011 of leave no trace. When you go hiking, when you grow up in Colorado, you go hiking, you bring in and you pack it back out anything that you, you've got. And so we were going to have an experience of leave no trace. And it was avant-garde at the time. We had um, uh, reusable water bottles and water stations, and it was wild and crazy that we would ask our attendees uh, to reuse a water bottle. Um, but we really had an impact, and we wanted to minimize the trash that was created by this global conference. And um, it went well, and we, we did achieve much of what we aspired to. But the following year, we traveled to Singapore where we um, were drinking out of eight ounce uh, single use plastic bottles. And what that spurred in me was that we had some, to have some institutional level change, not just an individual at the head of a conference. So that, that was a big turning point for me is that it had to be institutional. You know, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, and I can see that institutional aspect of all these different, um, you know, pivotal moments in your career and and um, all of this uh, different narratives that make up this wonderful person that you are, Carol. So, you know, that, that's a really interesting story. And it weaves in. So uh, simple. YPO. It's so simplistic. <laughs> that's what I think is intriguing about it, Stephen. Yeah, and, and you weave in YPO. So just for the uh, for the audience who may not be familiar with YPO, YPO is this wonderful organization. It's over 70 years old, over 30,000 executives coming together and sharing and uh, enabling and empowering um, by the, all of that sharing and employing about 22 million across over 140 countries, 450 chapters. They run thousands of events <laughs> and things like that. in revenue across the organization. So um, yeah, it's amazing impact. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so that's so, uh, and I know there's this barrier to get in. So what, since you mentioned YPO, um, how do you get in? So uh, talk about your your personal sort of entrepreneur, entrepreneurship sure. journey sure. and what that was like. And then, of course, then you got into YPO and there's this barrier or challenge. You had to hit this barrier, uh, this hurdle to get into YPO. So maybe you can talk about that, but infuse it with this entrepreneurial side of who you are. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, my, my company, Tatanka Capital Corporation, was started in 1993. And like many leaders, I, I was experiencing the, the loneliness at the top. Um, you, you, you separate yourself from your peers and it happens slowly and in some cases accidentally. Um, and so finding YPO at the time that I joined, uh, there was a, uh, which is 20 plus years ago, by the way, um, it was a threshold of being a CEO under the age of 40 and also um, uh, reaching a U.S. revenue of $8 million. Today, the threshold has moved 
to under the age of 45, as we're all getting younger in that journey. Um, and I believe the threshold is 12 million uh, US revenue. And what that does, Stephen, is it brings everybody that you meet inside of YPO has this minimum experience level of what th they've been managing to or what they've been leading. So it gives a camaraderie, frankly, um, that is gender and culturally neutral because of the economic and the age requirement. Um, so yeah, uh, 450 chapters worldwide, and it's been a priceless organization for me. Um, it, my business is very US centric. Uh, I'm focused on public finance in the US and uh, public education in the US. And what I like to say about YPO is that it's brought me the world. It's taken me out into the rest of the world um, to have these types of conversations. You're a successful entrepreneur because you made you met the barrier, this sort of hurdle to get into YPO, and and uh, you know it's a it, it's a really interesting organization because of this vetting process that occurs. So let's talk about the entrepreneurship journey in more detail because it's harder for women. It's harder for women to raise capital. It's harder for women to start a company and. And there's this sort of bias that's always been there for many, many, well, for <laughs> millennia, <laughs> you know, for <laughs> thousands of years, right? So, you know, what what were the catalysts to say, you know what, I'm going to start this business? Was it from your family or just you just felt driven to be an entrepreneur? Yeah. And, and, and talk, I, tell us more about your business. There was no there was no uh, business plan. I can I can tell you that I I can look back and I um have a history in my family of strong entrepreneurial women, uh, certainly in a different shape and form. Um, but my grandmother and my mother had beauty salons. So I grew up, I can now look back and know that I was, um, I, I had models who were working 24 seven to contribute to the, the family household. Um, uh, the husbands in that line were uh, more linear, professional, um, uh, engineers uh, was as my dad's and my husband's trade. And uh, I think that's an interesting combination, frankly. Um, I have a very supportive spouse, I have to say that, who is very linear in his aerospace engineering. And I tend to be the what if, how about this? Let's move there. Um, so it's a very nice combination. And um, I actually was never held down by my spouse. So that's a big point. Um, with respect to the journey, Stephen, I had an opportunity. I was a successful um, underwriter of public finance transactions for a national bank who um, wanted to put a cap on my earnings because I had yeah. done too well. And that pushed me out into the marketplace. And I had somebody step forward. And I wouldn't have known these words at the time, frankly. I was uh, 30, 31 years old, but they were my capital backer. Um, but I never had to go seek capital in the traditional sense. Um, it was basically brought to me. And um, we fill niches. My, I think one of my skills personally is to identify um, inefficient niches in gigantic markets. Public finance is trillions of dollars annually here in the U.S. And we were performing at about $100 million a year, which is a smidgen of the marketplace, we never needed market share, um, but the the value that we brought to those um, customers was because there really was no other source. When I describe my competitors, it would be Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase, Deutsche Bank, and yet when I was in my sweet spot, spot of course, um, there was no competition because they wouldn't do what I could do, and vice versa. And we just grew. <laughs> So I mean, you would you would provide capital, you know, government capital, right, to to uh, companies and things like that, and so on. I'm happy to share. Um, what we do is we provide a, so a municipality from the federal government down uh, to the local park and rec district. Um, they buy every sort of widget or service you can imagine, and they pay for it on time in many circumstances. And so we would supply capital to the vendor who's been awarded a government contract and whose um, traditional banker doesn't understand the nature of a government contract. 
they come with a wide array of um, risks and, and termination clauses that the <laughs> traditional banker is just not privy to, frankly. Um, uh, again, uh, another key to my business was transactional size, tended to be $5 million and under because the banker who had the background and, and frankly, sophistication to do the transaction was looking for that $30 million transaction, not that $1.2 million transaction. So our primary customers are vendors who are supplying widgets and services to governmental entities. And we can change that vendor's life. And that vendor, uh, across the board, all of the projects are called essential use. So they're all contributing to the, to the government good, to the good of society. Um, we've financed schoolhouses and um, rescue vehicles, satellite uplink equipment, telephone systems, uh, uh, aircraft um, or um, uh, aircraft simulators for training for the Navy, just the widest variety of, of capital asset that you could imagine, each one providing um, a governmental service. You were able to identify an uh, area of the market that wasn't being addressed <laughs> and you addressed it. And that's that's how you uh, grew this business. And, uh, you know, it, a top business in that sector uh, because it, it, of that. It's interesting, actually, Stephen, that this business that you and I are talking about now, that was the original core business that Tatanka Capital started. That market has completely matured. It's about a, the industry itself is probably... 40, 50 years old. I entered it when it was, you know, maybe 15, 20 <laughs> years old. And the market has completely matured. We're really not functioning in that space because the large institutions now recognize and understand the minimal risk that was there. And it's been commoditized. There's no margin in it anymore. So we've moved on to the uh, public education sector. And we're uh, helping provide district level services to public charter schools in the country. Okay, so let's mine that in more detail. Let's let's okay. talk about that. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you saw this whole area of which you were, uh, you know, filling a need, and you did very well. And then you decided to do a pivot, and and the pivot is because it's being commoditized. Uh, the big players are moving in, and then you have to shift that business. Were you able to see the warning signs or some of the flags that you needed to do this early on? And and so when you did the shift, or what were the indicators? What was that like to go through that transition? Uh, well, uh, what it was like, it, it's it's often not necessarily fun. Because, you know, when you've got a thriving um, uh, market niche going on, of course, change there um, is always hard. But yes, it tends to follow trends. And it and it's, again, very basic, Stephen. It's the narrowing of margins. Um, what we would find in a, a, a transaction where we might uh, charge five points um, to do a transaction now, Banks are charging $500, uh, you know, a flat fee, a minimal small flat fee. So it does present itself over time. And um, I think that is one of my skills is to look. I, I love reading reports. I'm a reader and yeah. I love numbers and I can identify uh, trends. So looking back, my company will be uh, actually 30 years old in uh, this coming February and looking back over those 30 years, we've probably pivoted five times. I'm not sure the external world can see that as, as well as I can see it. Um, but yeah, the, the markets, just the margins uh, closing. And so we uh, moved into the, this um, uh, back office services space in education primarily because we're very good at managing governmental money. We understand the procurement process of government entities and how to have that money um, flow through, if you will, for the needed services. And so um, that was started the summer of 2015. And um, it's, I tell people all the time, Stephen, education is much harder than finance. 
it <laughs> has it's it's a lot harder <laughs> um and and you know you're in the financial services world too there can be you know some heavy hitters in that space what i find in education is in the US is that there is a weight and it comes down from our federal government constantly telling people not good enough, constantly telling our, our um, uh, academic administrators not good enough and our academic instructors or teachers not good enough. And frankly, our students not good enough. And um, that's something that we're hoping to change inside of our organization to start, to get rid of that feeling of not good enough. Um, it's hard. You know, that uh, it's just a fascinating, it, 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 I mean, it's a complete pivot, right? In, in many respects, but yet because you have these core um, skills, and core knowledge and expertise, you can still leverage that into another sector. So that's why you established uh, uh, Taconta uh, Education Tatonka. Services. Yep. Yeah, Taconca, Taconca, yeah, Education Services or TES, and it's the public a public benefit corporation, right? So right. why the public benefit corporation? You know, um, very specifically. Uh, it's very common in the education space uh, for companies to form as not-for-profits. And we looked at that and did a lot of research and we just didn't feel that that was genuine, frankly. Um, a, a lot of money flows through a lot of not-for-profits and um, there's a lot of wealth created in not-for-profits and it's just not our background. <laughs> but um uh, so we went the for-profit route because it, it's who we are, and it's really what the aim is. Our aim is for-profit, but we did see the company um, as something where we have um, the ability to have an impact, again, to a wider um, stakeholder base, frankly. And um, uh, I've still got a good mountain to climb, but I would love to find um, uh, both my company, and we're working on it, as well as the industry paying teachers for their contribu contribution to society. Um, I say things like that, Stephen, and you know, sometimes the pushback is, well, we can't pay you know, teachers um, six figures. We can't afford... And I, I'm not talking about necessarily, you know, making teachers the wealthiest um, uh, 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 profession on the planet, but I do think there's plenty of room to, to pay teachers for their contribution to society. And so that's where we're sort of focused inside of this umbrella of education is on our teachers and our employees um, and, and just raising up, frankly, um, how society feels about the teaching profession. It's taken a hit. You you um, founded a company, right, at um, Tatonka Capital. Then this became Tatonka Education Services. But you, there's the name Tatonka. <laughs> Where does that come from? Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, again, simple story. First off, I needed a name. I was leaving a national bank and the competitors in that public finance space are government funding group, public lending corporation. Very, they're a little too boring for me, Stephen. And um, I'm again in Denver, Colorado, and um, uh, we have the CU Buffaloes. So there's the whole Western, you know, feel. So Tatanka is the Lakota Sioux name for the American bison. And I happened to be, uh, I just stumbled upon uh, a little essay about how um, the American bison is the monarch of the plains, vitality, strength. Um, it really was the backbone of, um, of part of, um, you know, the, the American experience, if you will, for, um, for our country. And so it just, it, it resonated with me. And I love to say, we have buffalo everywhere, Stephen, in my office, <laughs> and I could not have paid uh, a, a sum of money for the branding that we received. But it was it was just the the symbol symbology of um, the American bison. I think it, it does embody um, who we are as a company and our personality. And um, there's a 
wonderful, very old. Um, if you remember US West, it was one of the old Mountain Bell um, telephone companies. They had a ad campaign that are two male bison, you know, <laughs> uh, going and it says, bring on the competition. And we've always kind of embodied that bring on the competition um, uh, spirit. So it's it's about standing proud. You know, that's fascinating narrative uh, story, the roots of, of both of these companies and the fact that you're able to transition uh, successfully. And, you know, you, you're about success, right? Uh, and your schools, the customer succeeding and uh, you're bringing down costs, you're maximizing efficiencies, you're putting money to use at the school sites and you're still yes. maintaining this triple bottom line. And you have uh, three grown children, uh, charter school kids as well. So, so there's that aspect. So you know about good management impacting kids' lives because you've done it personally within your it home, has right? Served, so. the, the market served my children very well. They went to a, um, so charter schools are schools of choice in the U.S. They're public schools but they provide a different operating. You have a choice of, I describe them as different operating systems. It's like choosing between a Mac and a PC, <laughs> but you still have to deliver education through them. My three children went to a K-5 school that had a operating platform um, driven by Outward Bound, the, the large outdoor exp um, exploration uh, company out of the Northeast. And so um, their their education was all centered on problem solving. And frankly, Stephen, I can see it. They're, they're in their late 20s and early 30s, and I can see it in their daily lives, that experience. <laughs> and so that too very much drove our looking at that industry and wanting to bring um, uh, some influence and some skill sets. Uh, you know, the average um, founder of a charter school um, has a philosophical approach, as I said, an operating system that they're bringing, and they're not thinking about um, the business of the school. That's what we do. Yeah, and and you have this great expertise of doing it, right? I mean, uh, of being an entrepreneur and and all of this um, history that you have. So in systems and programs and generating win-win scenarios of doing that <laughs> across win -win, all of yes. the different roles, right? You know, as an entrepreneur too, you know, the lesson is you you have resilience and uh, you have grit and perseverance and and there's volatility when you're an entrepreneur and you have to manage and, and ride that volatility through that persistence, resilience. So you're, you're exhibiting all of that. And, and that's sort of the lifeblood of YPO as well. So let's, let's get in more now into the YPO. We talked about it earlier. You mentioned that you've been a, a, a YPO member for more than a couple of decades, right? And and you've got a, a U.S. Uh, focused business, but your participation has been global. So let's talk about that. Well, uh, you met the initial threshold to join YPO. How long did that onboarding process take? Is it and how did you find out about YPO? What, did I, you have friends in YPO or? <laughs> no, uh, I actually, I had a vendor who is about 15 years older than me that I'm still friends with who led me there. He he gave an introduction. Um, so, uh, and I think that's a common actually experience for um, certainly my generation of YPO member. There also was a push at the time, Stephen, this was the uh, early 2000s. Um, uh, to find more female members. They definitely were attempting um, to make a diversification. Um, the process, yeah. you know, it, it can be slow um, at times, but it is because it's member-led and members have day jobs. So I, I would balance uh, that slowness with it's it's really the volunteer member Who's, who's working that process. So it, it probably took nine months to become a full member uh, to go through the interview uh, process. And um, at the time of my membership, things were very geographic uh, driven. My business has always been national and it also basically follows uh, population centers. So primarily Midwest to the Northeast and then the West Coast. So I really didn't have business connections here locally in Denver. 
not a big population center. And so um, that connection to YPO and its geographic base at the time connected me to local business um, leaders that that I didn't know, that have become my friends. Um, uh, but as um, today, YPO, what's allowed me to really go global with YPO, besides um, the, the various conferences that they put on, is the advent of um, networks. And networks are um, interest-based, either industry or business-focused, uh, personal interest. And then you and I met through YPO's impact networks, which are, are focused on the 17 UN SDGs and have a, a focus on people, planet, peace. And then the network that I'm the chair of, which is a sustainable business network or business as a force for good. So um, I, I hear from your journey, then you're a successful entrepreneur <laughs> and you're working with vendors. And I, uh, this vendor who is older would be a YPO member. I was thinking Carol would make a great YPO <laughs> because of her energy, her commitment, her entrepreneurship spirit. She meets the threshold. And so the vendor does an introduction and you go through this process, right? Because they have to check you out because YPO, they'll, they'll vet you. Yes. And you, you got to go through this process to make sure you meet the criteria. You have criteria. a third-party so, certification. They, you, you have to supply a third-party certification. So they vet you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then, then you're, you, that you finally get something. You must got a letter or something saying you're in. And then you, then you, you're part of, I guess, a chapter. What is yes. that like? And yes. so, yeah. describe that process before we get into the global work. So, sure. uh, okay. because the audience doesn't know. <laughs> sure, absolutely. at at the At the local chapter experience level, YPO operates on an academic calendar, so July to June, and um, the core of uh, YPO's, um, I think member interactions are about lifelong learning and idea exchange. And so at the chapter levels, um, individuals have stepped forward into officer roles to put on what we call an education year. And um, those are very wide in their experience based on the size of chapter and based on the enthusiasm or the connections of the champion that is the current learning officer. But what, um, what happens as an individual member is that you're going to have an opportunity to participate in probably anywhere between five, well, let's say 10 and 20 to 25 learning events with your chapter. And um, one of the things, and, and, and the learning events come through um, the interest level of that current officer, the current learning officer of that, that calendar year or that academic year. And um, the intent is to bring forward um, exposure to ideas and opinions that might not actually be your own that are um, the person next to you and it's their interest and it's their, um, you're seeing it through their eyes and their vantage point. And an early lesson was uh, for, for myself and my husband because YPO does embrace um, spouse partners in, in the entire journey. Um, you know, early on, we sort of found ourselves picking and choosing things. Oh, I'm not really interested in that. You know, oh, I don't need to go to that. And that was a huge mistake because really that is where the growth, as we all know, being challenged is where the growth happens. And so um, to, to the future YPOers out there, the, the, the real benefit is going and, and participating in those events that you don't think you have an interest in, that you don't agree with, um, you're going to get exposure. Um, you know, the unprecedented exposure to, um, again, the vantage point of somebody that you can uh, lay some trust with because you've got this peer experience in uh, meeting those YPO thresholds. Um, it's interesting that you pick this up because um, 
you know, there's research to indicate that as well. They, uh, you know, some researchers indicate that 50% of success is because of diverse thinking, diverse people networks, and you have to engage. You have to, as you mentioned, get, you know, sort of get out of your comfort zone and, you know, stretch your boundaries, which, and, and you do that. <laughs> you can clearly, I uh, could see that throughout your career. So, and, and you have these uh, really intimate sharing. And because this is public through other interviews I've done with YPOs, they, they, you call them forums. So right. what was that first like when you first got introduced to a forum? Because you didn't know these existed in you, this way, right? So. Correct. Correct. Yeah. The forum experience, which is basically a small group and a cone of, of um, confidentiality. Uh, so it's a lot of trust that you lend the people that you participate with. Um you know, it's freeing and it's also a burden because you tell your story. And and um, uh, what is interesting in my mind about forum and when I share with people, um, there is a selfish tension that takes place inside of forum. Um, to really get something out of it, you need to be selfish about what you want and, and what um, you're willing to give. But to get your forum mates, the other members of your forum to do the same, you have to be present and available. So you can't be you know, solely selfish or your, your other forum mates will leave. But, so I find it to be like this tension, Stephen, and I, it's a selfish tension where you have to get and give very equally at the same time. Yeah, and in the intimacy would just build an incredible level of engagement. And as you indicated, very trust, trust-driven, right? Because you're I'll sharing. tell you, I, I, uh, I've been in, a, um, in two primary forums and you have people that tell stories that they've been in forum you know, for 20 plus years. That hasn't been my personal experience. For me, forum has um, been a wonderful experience at different points of time, but I did uh, join a uh, woman's forum through the, the Women's Business Network, which I was a member of and, and uh, was part of their leadership team for a time. And that was a uniquely special experience. It lasted for about eight years. And um, I'll tell you, I never thought I needed a woman's group. Let me put that out there. Um, you know, I would have joined NABO in the U.S. if I thought I needed a, a women's business leadership group. And um, so I, I was sort of that female member that didn't think I needed to hang out with other female leaders. And I had a girlfriend twist my arm that brought me into that part of the organization, Stephen, and it was a priceless experience. <laughs> yeah it, because there'll be so much shared learnings as well and and uh you know there is bias out there and you have to fight that bias and and i would say shifts. that i i don't feel like i've personally can i look back over a 30 plus year career and see right. a few points um i like to say every once in a while i have somebody who speaks to me like they're patting me on the head to tell me <laughs> good job um <laughs> That's less and less as I've gotten older. Let me say that too. Um, but um, I don't think personally, Stephen, that I have experienced a ton of bias, um, certainly not for being a woman. I probably experienced some age bias, frankly. I think that it might have started <laughs> my company because of the, the large, you know, national bank, um, you know, thinking I was too young to be doing what I was doing. But but there, I don't want to undervalue uh, the bias. And that was one thing that I learned um, in participating with the Women's Business Network. The global experience of female leaders um, is not necessarily the good experience that I had. Um, there are very challenging experiences out there. So let's let's talk even further about YPO because it's been okay. interwoven uh, into your life in so many different ways, including your family, right? So I'm sure your kids were YNGers, so a YPO next generation and yep. and your husband as a spouse. Um, they're, they're he's, been in a, he's been in a male spouse forum for um, I think it's 18 <laughs> years. Right. So, and uh, you're the recipient of the YPO Best of the Best Network Worldwide in 2012 and that's a, a women's uh, business network chair. Yeah. 
Can you describe that journey to become the Women's Business Network chair and and uh, and then uh, and you know some tips lessons from that? Um, again, uh, about ten years ago, and so there was uh, networks were still finding their way at their at the time, which leads you know for opportunity in, with the leadership because we um, I think. My most significant influence um, with the Women's Business Network was um, focusing on depth of bench in leadership for mm-hmm. the network itself. Um, we really, we took a, um, actually looking back, we took a nine-year focus. Um, the, the leadership journey inside of the networks tends to be a three-year journey. And there were three of us that lined up with a united focus on what we wanted to do for the network. So we got to build on each other's shoulders year after year. And um, probably the the most significant things that we did do is we um, demonstrated a a depth of bench where we brought in a wide global um, executive committee. Uh, We made a very concerted effort to get out of North America YPO has its challenges, and it's interesting. They're somewhat cultural. Um, North Americans are volunteers in a way that you don't always see all over the globe, and uh, YPO is definitely about volunteering. Um, But we made an effort to expand our executive committee uh, on a global level into YPO's super regions. And then um, we also focused on bringing in the male members of YPO into the Women's Business Network organization. <laughs> and we changed our focus to being from being about us as female leaders to being about female leadership in general, focusing on their daughters, focusing on their employees and um, those female women in their organizations that may not be rising to the C-suite, but are moving up into middle management. So we greatly broadened the focus of the Women's Business Network. In the early days, it was about just finding each other. I happened to get to participate during a time where the focus went much larger and it went outside of our organization, which was a great pleasure. You know, the coming together of transformational women in a CEO-led organization, which is member-focused, would be an amazing experience and uh, and a great opportunity as well, right? To bring together all these yes. contributions, right? So do, do you find that um, the lessons learned and the influence that you've had on YPO are continuing and growing from that initiative? Or, you know, what systemic changes were you able to uh, create or opportunities, sure. I guess, within the well, greater I actually want to share a, a kind of funny story with you that you just triggered. And this is more of a personal transformation with respect to um, WBN. Um, you know, in finance, it's a, it, it's a, it was a man's world. Certainly, again, for my generation, I found myself at the table, the only woman. Certainly, that was the norm. It Um, It wasn't unusual because it was the usual for me to be the only woman in the room. And that was never really a challenge for me. Sitting down that first time as the chair of of an executive committee that was made up, we were probably 14 female CEOs. (laughs) That put me outside of my element. I have never, you know, I'm a saleswoman at heart. I'm a salesman at heart, Stephen. And so I can work a room I can pick up, you know, what is going to be uh, the leverage points. Uh, I'll never forget the fear of leading those 14 female executives. And, um, you know, so that in itself pushed me. And and that is part of the legacy. Starting being in the education space, it is much more heavily dominated by women here in the U.S., not necessarily at the higher executive or administrative levels, but certainly at the the staff levels. And so I think WBN trained me to help, you know, use my skills in reading culturally the room of a group of women, not just a group of men uh, who were working on a transaction. Within uh, YPO, I think the um, 
the the change there 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 has been a shift in recognizing i believe what women can do in member organization and their businesses i i do believe that we caused a bit of an awakening in um uh you know, the human capital inside of our member company businesses, um, it, it's changed. It's not, you know, it's, it's just not avant-garde anymore. It's not, it's expected. And I do think that um, uh, YPO, you know, through its reach had a big part of that. Um, I share in my bio that we participated and helped launch Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In effort I think that, you know, you can find lean in circles in most large organizations globally. And um, the Women's Business Network really uh, supported. We launched um, 80 circles for her globally for her kickoff. Um, so it just it's now out there. It's it's permeated everyday life, everyday corporate life. You know, that's just the. Uh... Outstanding. And, and I'm just going to list some of the other things you've done before. And then I want to get into the Global Impact Summit that you're doing and your co-chair and and the work you're doing on the uh, YPO Impact Networks Council. But you, you remember the YPO International Learning Committee from 2009 to 2012. Again, <laughs> amazing uh, work. Uh, recipient of the YPO Best of the Best Chapter Worldwide in 2009 as YPO Rocky Mountain Chapter Chair. You already talked about the YPO earlier, about the YPO Global Leadership Conference Endeavor. Denver, Colorado in 2011, where you were host chair, and you said there's so many uh, lessons from that. You, we've already talked about the best of the best network, the Worldwide 2012, uh, being the Women's Business Network chair, a member of the YPO International Events Committee, iconic events portfolio lead from 2019 to 2022. Just, uh, just outstanding leadership of this organization. But now let's focus on this first of its kind event um, that's being held. And so uh, what led you to become the chair of the YPO Sustainable Business Network, which is part of the YPO Impact Networks Council? So what led you to that journey? And then what led you to being uh, the co-chair of the YPO Global Impact Summit? And what do you hope to accomplish? And, and so on. So, okay, so let's spend the rest of the time on that. So okay. you're now the chair of the YPO Sustainable Business Network. How did that happen? What, yes. what created the synergy to, for that? Well, occur? clearly I can't, I, keep, I can't keep my hand behind my back. So uh, a big um, part of the YPO experience is just putting your name forward, frankly, uh, Stephen. But what drew me to the Sustainable Business Network uh, really goes back to that first story with 2011, where I wanted to get involved in um, providing some institutional change for an organization that has given me so much. So it's it start, really, it started small by joining the network and just participating in uh, their discussion board conversations. And um, I like to say nicking away at YPO in causing some change or maybe nudging a little shoving here and there. And we've had some good success in that. Um, but I, I'm just a you know, I, I know that I'm going to get back tenfold from what I put in. So I'm at my core, I'm a volunteer and I'm a gatherer of people. Um, my my skill is not necessarily a, um, a, a uh, industry expertise, but I can bring together people across industries and a pro across product groups. Um, so I think that's probably what led me to the chair position of SBN and the faith of my uh, fellow members in, in um, nominating me and putting in that role is that I do have a, uh, the skill of, of um, rallying the troops. And um, so it's in that role that led me to co-chair uh, the, the Global Impact Summit coming up in February of 2023. And, you know, it's it's been an interesting journey in, in that role, Stephen, because the, so the uh, YPO Impact um, Networks, as I as I mentioned, are focused on the 17 UN SDGs, and there's a lot of time spent on um, just providing educational resources. What does that mean? What I love about the SDGs myself is that um, 
they, they released me from having to solve every problem. I think there, there's a level of uh, being overwhelmed by some of our global challenges. And when you, you know, read about the background and the thought of the SDGs, it was to just pick and choose where you can have impact and where you can focus. And my business focus is in quality education and um, uh, decent work. So employment and education. I can do something in those two places. I cannot personally you know, change our water crisis. So that's what I love about the, the SDGs. Um, across the four networks, we're focused on all of them. So you can have an effort in all of them. The um, impact um, summit had its origins and in, in in spreading understanding about how people can get involved either personally or through their businesses. And that's the mission of the impact um, networks as a group. What has happened in this particular summit, and I think this will ebb and flow, Stephen, we're going to a relatively uh, remote location in Costa Rica. And at the end of the day, if you're a skeptic, you're not going to travel that distance. Um, you're just, you know, it's it's just, it's too hard to get to. But what it's, where it's going to be a relatively small group at about 150 people. Everyone there has already bought into having a focus on uh, impact and purpose and sustainability. And I really want to add for the listeners that uh, sustainability is about, for me, it's about my business living beyond me, carrying out its work. Um, sustainability is um, sometimes used, in my opinion, too narrowly, narrow, I can't get that word out, but it, we're, we're too defined. It's about being sustainable. And we won't be sustainable if we don't serve our customers, our employers, our, our employees, our capital sources, our suppliers. It's that whole um, you know, universe of people and entities that, that keep a business open. So that's my personal interest in SBN. And um, we're going to have this amazing setting um, where we are going to have people that are all headed in a similar direction. So I really think what we're going to have a chance to do is accelerate what all of us are working on um, by just being together for those four days. And you as co-chair, um, what do you hope to achieve as an outcome that you think, what you think you're going to be able to do some systemic um, opportunity catalyzation within YPO and beyond? Right, or? right. And, and we've already seen some change, Stephen. So again, um, I, I think the systemic change that we want to see is just um, continuing to have people be more comfortable with um, being, uh, with, with attributing their business focuses to a sustainable focus. And um, I think that there's a lot of hang up around language. Um, <laughs> you know, if I literally just say the word or color green, different people are going to have physical reactions to the word or color green. I'm hoping that we can get past that. I think the um, I, I think there's a lot of people like me out there. I'm a stakeholder capitalist. I would not have used that terminology 10 years ago. I would have told you that I'm a win-win business leader, <laughs> but really win-win stakeholder capitalism, it's all the same thing. I don't need a loser to be a winner. Um, and I've never, you know, my business never had that, that approach. I think there are a lot of, I think most entrepreneurial companies um, are focused in, in that manner. And I think what has happened in the, the, the advent of politicizing some of these words has caused people to step away from things that they're already they they're already doing it. They already have a sustainable practice in their business. They already care about their suppliers and their customers and their employees. But we we we've taken language and it's gotten a little bit twisted. So I think the systemic change coming out of the GIS will be the enthusiasm uh, because it's such a small group, people are being turned away from attending. That's gonna create a buzz in itself. 
scarcity, you know, can be a good thing at times, but we're already seeing it permeate uh, the rest of the organization. There's not a network I can think of that hasn't had a program around this subject matter on their calendar. So it's out there. So we're down to our last question. And this question is what uh, sort of last messages or recommendations do you want to leave the audience? <laughs> oh, gosh, Whew, that's a big question. Um, you know, I think it's the point that I was just making to not let um, language get in the way of sharing ideas about um, sustainable businesses and to and and probably Steve and the people that are listening uh, to your programming probably have bought in on some level I'm imagining. And so it's when they find themselves in conversations. I, I had a conversation with a dear friend and I was talking about changing YPO systemically and he rolled his eyes at me. He you know, <laughs> physically rolled his eyes. I, I'll, I'll save naming him here. Um, and I said, but I, all I wanna do is have less trash. And he said, oh, well, I can get on board for that. Less trash is good. And that was this <laughs> aha about how language is getting in the way of us getting on this, on similar path. And so that's what I would share with your audience is if you find yourself in a conversation that you know feels a little barrier or deadlocked, <laughs> look to change the language and try to get down to a common language, like no trash. It's, it's hard to be against <laughs> less trash. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, some great uh, recommendations. You, you know, Carol, you're you're doing amazing work. You're an outstanding executive across so many different areas, and uh, you know, I thank you for coming in and sharing so many of your joyful insights and opportunities with our audience. Thank you again. Thank you, thank you so much, Stephen, for happening and having me and giving me that reflection. It's also a gift, so I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.